Thank you, Brother Ted. This is Winfield Bible School, 2009. The Bible School theme is The Fall of Flesh to the Triumph of Spirit. The speaker for this session is our brother Nathan Lewis. The title for his series is Esther, Queen of Destiny. This is Class 1. The title is The Feast, The Fall of Vashti. And our reading was Esther 1, verses 1 to 22. Brother Nathan. Well, thanks, Brother Rod. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. You do that in North America, right? When I say, good afternoon, you all reply, huh? Well, we just had lunch, and uh, now we come to the feast. So I uh, hope you've all saved a little bit of space uh, in those stomachs of yours, because we're going to look at the great banquet which King Ahasuerus chose to hold for all the world. Um, first of all, thanks very much for having us here. Um, Susanna, my wife, and uh, little Mariah, she's uh, just about one, so she'll probably be talking to us throughout the session this afternoon. Um, we've never been here before, at least I haven't, So, uh, and it's a very beautiful country, so thank you very much for having us. Uh, flying into Calgary and um, into Kelowna yesterday was uh, very nice, a bit like New Zealand, so it made us feel at home. We're living uh, at the moment in Los Angeles, and... Uh, for those of you who have been to Los Angeles, you know that uh, it's a hideous, horrible part of the world. Um, it, it really isn't what you'd call the scenic center of the world, is it? And uh, in fact, we live we live right where the 10 freeway bisects the 405 freeway. So it's right it's right in the heart of downtown Los Angeles. And uh, we kind of say to ourselves that if Los Angeles is the the armpit of America, <laughs> then uh, we live right in the biggest sweat pour. <laughs> so it's not a nice place, but it's very nice to be here and to, uh, to be here in Canada. Well, we get to spend the week together looking at the story of Esther, and uh, it is a fantastic drama, as I'm sure all of you know. Um, it's, it's really a magnificent story. It's one of those stories that appeals to, to all ages. We've got the fabulously wealthy king enthroned on the castle in the hill. We've got the, the extraordinarily beautiful captive girl who's plucked from obscurity and made queen of all the earth. We've got her humble cousin who's made prime minister. And lurking in the shadows, we have probably the darkest villain in all of the Old Testament, Haman the Agagite, intent on treachery, deceit, and murder. Does it get any better than this, brothers and sisters? Everything is here in this story. From chapter to chapter, we're going to lurch from extravagant feasts to evil plots. We're going to move from beauty pageants to assassination attempts, from secret messages in the night to dramatic exposés. It's the kind of book that you don't want to put down. It's, it's got everything there. It's love versus hate. It's deceit versus honesty. It's evil versus righteousness. And hopefully, brothers and sisters, as we go through this week together, we're going to be likewise on the edge of our seats as we look at the amazing, truly amazing way in which God is able to save his nation 
how he's able to, to pluck, as it were, life and deliverance from the very jaws of death and defeat. And you know, brothers and sisters, the story of Esther and the book of Esther is really all about the providence of God. That whatever comes, God cares for his people. We know the, the quote in Romans 8, don't we? All things work together for good for those who love God. And that's really, if you like, a banner that we could put over the top of the book of Esther. It's all about how God is working to bring together the called ones for his purpose. And yet, brothers and sisters, in a book that simply throbs of the providence of God and him working amongst the nations, did you know that the name of God never appears in the book of Esther? The name of God never appears in the book of Esther. We don't have a single title of God. We have no mention of God. And we don't even have a mention of prayer to God in the book of Esther. It's amazing, really, isn't it, that absent from this book, it seems on the surface, is the God who really is the centre of the book. Why is that, brothers and sisters? Well, it's because this is the book of providence. And what is providence? Unless it be the unseen hand of of God at work. Just look at these couple of references from, from the Old Testament to illustrate what I mean. This is Deuteronomy chapter 31. And uh, it says, Yahweh said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will hide my face from them, says Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 to 18, so that they will say in that day, are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have wrought and that they are turned unto other gods. And they went, didn't they, brothers and sisters, into captivity because of idolatry, because they turned to other gods. And God says, you do that and I will hide my face from you. Isaiah 45, verses 15 to 17. Thou art a God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the Saviour. They shall be ashamed and also confounded, but Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. And God was going to be a God who was going to hide himself. And where was he going to be hidden brothers and sisters? Well, he says, he's the God that hides himself, O God of Israel. And amongst the captives in Persia, there was a God who was hiding himself in this story, the God of the nation of Israel. And so in the book of Esther, we have the unseen work of the Savior of Israel. It's hidden, as it were, to the casual observer, to those who are in ignorance or in darkness of how God works. But not to us, brothers and sisters. To us, God simply jumps off the page almost out of every verse, as we'll see. You know, it's interesting why we are here and talking about the name of God in Esther by way of introduction. Uh, it's not entirely true, is it, to say that the name of God doesn't occur in Esther? Because, as some of you will know, the name of God does occur in Esther, but it appears acrostically. 
What's an acrostic, by the way? Can anyone uh, enlighten the group? No? All right, let me, let me help you. An acrostic really is where uh, a word or a sentence will start with successive letters of the alphabet. And the word Yahweh, or at least the consonants of Yahweh, are going to be found in the book of Esther four times. Two times going forwards and two times going backwards, hidden in the text. And it's in these words here. If you don't have a note of them, you can take them down. It's chapter 1, verse 20, when it says, All the wives shall give unto their husbands the honor that's due. Chapter 5, verse 4, Let the king and Haman come. Chapter 5, verse 13, Haman says, Yet all this availeth me nothing. And lastly, in chapter 7, verse 7, Haman said there, he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. And the Companion Bible comments on this in appendix uh, number 60, and and, uh, the writer of the Companion Bible says that in the book of Esther, God is known more by his virtues than by open manifestation. He's hidden. He's, he's secretly embedded in the book. And look at those little phrases, brothers and sisters. Don't you think that that perfectly sums up the book of Esther? It's all about the bride that's going to give honor to her husband. It's about the king and Haman coming to a banquet feast. It's all about Haman's pride All this avails me nothing. And it's all about the destruction of sin. Haman saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. And together those four little simple statements summarize for us in a certain way the the theme of the book of Esther. A trivia question for you. There is one other book, actually, in the, in the entire Bible that doesn't have the name of God in it. Does anyone know what that book might be? Any guesses? Another book that doesn't have the name of God in it. Any suggestions? There's no prizes, by the way. I'm sorry. No one knows? It's the book of the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon. All about the marriage of a bride to a husband. Well, I want to say a few words about our approach to these, to these studies because uh, most of you have probably been in the truth uh, long, a lot longer than me. So uh, all of us pretty well know the story of Esther. We know the ebb and the flow of the narrative. We all came here uh, to this week knowing that At the end, Haman dies, and Mordecai is really going to win. We all know that before we came here. And we probably knew as well that there was a a kind of typical aspect to the book, that there was a type lurking uh, in the shadows. And so this week, we really want to try and limit ourselves to not going over the basics of the story, but perhaps drawing out a few lessons. And I want to concentrate perhaps a little more than usual on the marvellous type hidden in in the book of Esther. Because, you know, brothers and sisters, I think by the end of the week, you are going to be astounded, astounded with what's hidden in the type of the book of Esther. The perfection of it. It's just what seems like a very simple story. And yet the type is simply incredible. You know, I've heard some people say that they even uh, doubt 
that there is a type in the book of Esther. And uh, other people will say, well, there, there is a type in the book of Esther, we know that. And, uh, but you've really got to take that with a pinch of salt, because uh, the, subs- the, the shadow doesn't prove the substance, and uh, you, a type doesn't prove itself. And, uh, but brothers and sisters, you are going to see during the week that the type in the book of Esther is astounding. And we're going to see it in our session this afternoon as we go through chapter 1. Perhaps some things that hopefully, I hope, uh, even if you've read the book of Esther all your life and been to Bible schools where you've heard talks on the book of Esther, you're going to learn something new this afternoon. So, let's come now to the background. And I want to say just a few words about the background to the book of Esther because uh, it's notoriously difficult. And if you've ever tried to sit down on uh, you know, an empty Friday or Saturday night and got the books off the library shelf and tried to nut out the chronology of the Persian kings, you will know that trying to fit together the Persian kings and Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther is a notoriously difficult thing to do. There's a lot of knotty problems when we come to this part of the Bible. And, and when I was preparing these talks, I was very determined to come to the bottom of this problem because I really dislike it when people stand up and, and say, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this and that, and I really don't know, so uh, make up your own minds. I, this, is, this is why we're here, is to get some definitive answers. So I really tried to come up with exactly who Ahasuerus was. But you know what? I'm 95% sure... But uh, I'm not going to be completely dogmatic. So we're not going to go into the Persian kings and chronology now. I'm going to have mercy upon you. It is just after lunch after all. But I will say this, that if you have stayed up late at night and tried to figure out the chronology of the Persian kings, then I'm sure you'll agree with me that Ahasuerus is Xerxes I. And not Darius Hystaspes, or Artaxerxes II. Now, if you uh, have a slightly different point of view, uh, I'm not going to kick you out of the camp, and, uh, but I would be very interested, if you have looked at that part of the Bible, uh, to come and talk to me during the week and give me your thoughts, because uh, I'm, I'm almost there, but, and I have a lot of, uh, a lot of reasons, but uh, I'm not 100% sure. So if you can provide that missing link, I'd be greatly appreciative. So, Xerxes I, and he reigned from from 486 to 465. I'm going to be this close to being dogmatic about that for your sakes, all right? So now we come in chapter 1 to the story of the king. And we're confronted with really the picture of a magnificent king when we come to Esther chapter 1. And this is what we read in verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces, that in those days, when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, and then it goes on. And we're given the picture of, a, of an extremely powerful monarch. Now, most of us know that Ahasuerus is really a title. It's not a name. It's a bit like Pharaoh or Tsar. And, uh, and uh, in, in the, uh, the original language, it means venerable king. Actually, Jacinius says it means lion king. And so, uh, because it's a title and, and not a name, 
Here in verse 1, the writer of, of Esther, and we don't know who that was, is at pains to tell us which Ahasuerus, which venerable lion king this was. He reigned from India to Ethiopia. And uh, you can maybe take a note, but both of those uh, places, India and Ethiopia, were conquered by Cambyses. Uh, India was conquered in 525 BC and Ethiopia in 523. It's about 30 years before Xerxes I. In fact, the conquering of Ethiopia was in fulfillment, wasn't it, of that great prophecy in, in Isaiah 45 and verse 14. I will give you Ethiopia for a possession. So we're given little hints, aren't we, as to who Ahasuerus was. And he reigned over, it says, an hundred and seven and twenty provinces. Now, in all likelihood, this was the hundred and twenty provinces that uh, made up the, the great empire of Babylon that we read of in, in Daniel 6 and verse 1. And probably tacked on to that was the seven provinces of the seven princes that we read of in, in Esther chapter 1 and verse 14. So 120 provinces of Babylon, Daniel 6 verse 1, plus the seven provinces of the seven princes, the seven great royal families in chapter 1 verse 14. And we have 127 provinces. And it says, doesn't it, brothers and sisters, in verse 2, that, that, uh, that Ahasuerus reigned from a place called Shushan, the palace. And Shushan means the city of white lilies. It was a beautiful place. It had a, a river flowing through the middle, and it was a very, a very beautiful place to live. And we're told that Shushan was the capital of the Persian Empire after the reign of Darius Hystaspes. Before, it was somewhere else. But after Darius Hystaspes, it was in Susa or Shushan. Now, I have a couple of pictures of Shushan just so we can wake ourselves up. So, actually, did I miss something? I think I did. I think I did. Um, let's just backtrack one second, and then we'll come to the pictures of Shushan. So we talked about the background and, and the work and the type that's in Esther. And look at this. This is a summary of, of how broad the type of Esther is. We're going to see as we go through the week the work that God is performing in Israel through the law of Moses. We're going to see that today. We're going to see God's work with the Gentiles through the power of grace and favor, the, the gospel of election. We're going to see the sacrifice of Christ that brought deliverance and joy to all the world. We're going to see at the end of Esther the subduing of the nations in the Battle of Armageddon and the conquering of Europe. We're going to see the final elevation of Christ and the bride. And uh, as our theme for the week is, we're going to see the triumph of, of the spirit over the flesh. So the type really is very broad, isn't it? It's not just narrow. It's going to take us right from the time of Israel under the law of Moses through the times of the Gentiles, the work of Jesus Christ, the subjection of Gog in the Battle of Armageddon, the conquering of Europe, the final elevation of the bride, all of that is going to be prefigured in the book of Esther as we go through this week. So, now let's come to the pictures of Shushan. Uh, this is probably the best picture you can find, or at least I could find, of what Shushan, uh, the palace, looked like, and it's very dark on the screen, so I apologise for that. But um, maybe you can imagine that in the front here is two lots of steps 
uh, leading up to a central courtyard and probably just through that piece right in the middle is, uh, is where the king would have sat all those years ago. This is Shushan, the palace. Now, this is a, an, another picture of this area and you can see that there seems to be like a castle up on a, on a hill and everybody else, the, the general populace, is, is spread out in the city of Shushan, the lowest city below. It was a very rich and affluent place. These are some of the, the ornate tiles and bricks that were taken and reconstructed of one of the walls of the palace of Shushan. Ahasuerus was an extraordinarily wealthy king. And uh, this is what it looks a bit like today. It's just pretty much ruins in the middle of Iran. And probably they do tours there to show the greatness of, of that kingdom that now is completely gone. But certainly when that palace stood, brothers and sisters, Ahasuerus was the undisputed king of all the world. And if you walked into his courtroom uninvited, you probably swung for it. And if he wanted to, he had absolute control, didn't he, over life and death. He has complete dominion over all the world. And so clearly in this story, as we're going to see, although of course he doesn't deserve to be, because he's just a mortal man, Ahasuerus is going to type for us the mighty monarch of the heavens above, our, Lord, our, our heavenly father, who has all power and all dominion. And we're going to read in verse 3 that he's going to make a grand banquet. In the third year of his kingdom, Ahasuerus decided to hold a grand feast. And let's just read these verses again because they really are magnificent. Verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honour of his excellent majesty many days, even in hundred and fourscore days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast, another feast, unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both unto great and small, seven days, in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red and blue and white and black marble. And they gave them drink in vessels of gold, the vessels being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance according to the state of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel for so the king had appointed in all the offices of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. It was a magnificent feast. Now you know, brothers and sisters, if you've ever listened to talks on Easter or read any set of notes on Easter before, you will find that, uh, in my experience, all of them say that this is a type of the kingdom. This is the king enthroned in glory. But, you know, I've, I've kind of always struggled with that, that in a type of the kingdom where God is enthroned in splendor and in majesty, we're going to have a disobedient wife. And, and we're going to start with the kingdom, 
And then we're going to kind of jump back and get into the story of Haman and Esther and Mordecai, but we kind of started at the end. And it's always kind of made me think, well, maybe, maybe there's something more to this story. And I'm going to suggest to you today that verses 3 to 8 is not so much the future glory of the kingdom, but it's really talking to us historically about what God did with the nation of Israel when he set them up as a kingdom, a kingdom of kings and priests. And you know, there's a clue that that's true. And the clue is that in Easter chapter 1, the feast, the feasting time is going to last for how long? Well, we're told, aren't we? 180 days, verse 4, and when those days were expired, another seven days. So we have 187 days of feasting. Now, the first thing you do is you, you look up the concordance and you find that 187 only occurs here. So we're no further on. But do you know that it's not actually the only place where 187 occurs? I want you to come, if you will, back to Exodus in chapter 19. What's Esther 1 really about? Well, I want you to hold your hand in Esther, and I want you to have Esther in one hand and Exodus 19 in the other hand, because we're going to talk about the grand feast of Esther chapter 1. And we're going to make a comparison between Esther chapter 1 and the grand feast that God is going to hold for the nation in the wilderness. It's in the story of Exodus and Leviticus. And here we are in Exodus 19. So let me run through it with you on the screen and and you can uh, take notes as you will. So in Esther chapter 1 and verse 3, Ahasuerus held a banquet to celebrate the newness of his kingdom. He's only just put down a revolt, and now he is newly established as king. He's only in his third year, and he's going to hold a banquet feast. And when we come to Exodus 19 and verse 6, God has newly taken Israel out of Egypt, and he is going to hold a banquet feast in the wilderness and make them his kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were constituted a kingdom just recently. Well, the first banquet in verse 3, it tells us, was for all the nobility and the aristocracy. They're called the nobles and the princes in Shushan the palace. And when we come over to Exodus and chapter 24, just over two or three chapters, we find in verse 1 that God said to Moses, Come up unto Yahweh, thou and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel. Verse 9, And Moses, and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up to a special feast with God. It wasn't in an extravagant palace, brothers and sisters. It was in God's palace, on the top of Mount Sinai. And it says in, in Esther chapter 1, verse 3, that at this feast... They were before the king. And the word in the Hebrew really means that they saw his face. They were before his presence. And you know, I'm going to suggest to you 
that seeing the king's face was a very rare event. We know that in chapter 1 and verse 14, the, the seven chamberlains, the seven wise men, they saw the king's face. No one else did. It was very rare to see the king's face. But at this banquet, all the people present saw the king's face. And in Exodus 24, look what we read in verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel, verse 11. Also, they saw God. This was a very, very special banquet indeed. We find in Esther chapter 1 and verse 4 that the feast lasted 180 days. And probably why it lasted so long was because all the army chiefs were going to come in, but you couldn't bring all of them in at once because the perimeter of the empire needed to be kept secure. So you would rotate them in to the banquet in Shushan. So the feast took longer than usual. It was 180 days. And I'm going to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that the period of building the tabernacle took exactly 180 days. When you look at those references in Exodus, chapter 19, verse 1, 24, verse 18, 34, verse 28, and 40, verse 2, it tells us pretty much that there was exactly six months involved in building the tabernacle. So the first feast for those who were skilled and who were the aristocracy and the nobles was the feast that God held in the wilderness, building the tabernacle. And it says in Esther that Ahasuerus showed them the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty. And you know what, brothers and sisters? You know what the tabernacle was? It was right in the center of the nation to show them the honor and the majesty of God. It tells us that in in Psalm 96 verse 6 and 145 verse 11 to 13. The tabernacle or the sanctuary was to show Israel the honor and the majesty of God. And that's exactly what Ahasuerus did. Well, the second banquet that we read of in Esther chapter 1 that lasted for only seven days was for the common people. The first banquet for 180 days was for the aristocracy, for special people. That was uh, Bezalel and Aholiab and those who were going to specially be prepared by God to make the tabernacle. But now, after 180 days is finished, we're going to have another feast. A feast for seven days. And this time it's going to be for everyone. And look what we're told in Leviticus 8 and verse 3. On the first day of of the first month, I think it was, the second banquet for all the congregation was held, the seven-day consecration of the sons of Aaron. And God says, you get everyone outside before the tabernacle. We're going to hold another feast now for everybody for seven days. Well, the seven-day feast in Esther was held in a tent, The word hangings literally means awnings or drapings. It was in a tent. And we know that the tabernacle was just such a thing, a tent. What were the colors that were involved in in Esther chapter 1? Well, we're told that they were blue, purple, and fine, white, fine linen. And you know, brothers and sisters, you will search the Bible in vain for anywhere else that those three things occur together 
except in one place. The colours of the tabernacle. Over and over and over and over again. Blue, purple and white fine linen. This is the feast, brothers and sisters, of God setting up the tabernacle in the wilderness, is it not? The hangings in Easter chapter 1 were held up by pillars, cords and silver rings, exactly the same as the tabernacle. Pillars, cords, silver rings. In fact, it's interesting because you probably can't read it down the back, but uh, down the bottom here I've got that the Apostle John in Revelation quotes from Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 33, quotes from that in Revelation 3 verse 12. And in Revelation 3 you remember these words, to him that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the house of God. A pillar. And it says, he quotes from Leviticus 8, which is the very feast of the consecration of Aaron and his sons, and he will no more go out. Because that's exactly what Aaron and his sons were to do. They had to go into the tabernacle, and for seven days they could not come out. They were pillars in the house of God. And John, the Apostle John in Revelation quotes from Leviticus, when he's talking about pillars. But all those things come straight from the tabernacle, do they not? There's a pavement, we read in verse 6, of different coloured stone. And if you're still in Exodus 24, you find verse 10 that there was a paved work of a sapphire stone under his feet. There were vessels of gold in the feast of Ahasuerus, all diverse from one another. And in God's newly formed house, the nation of Israel, there were many diverse people, but all of them, brothers and sisters, were gold. They were all formed by faith. They came out of Egypt by faith. And lastly, we find in verse 8 of Esther 1 that the drinking was according to the law, but none did compel. What a paradox that is. A law that doesn't compel... Well, we read in Exodus 24 and verse 7 that all the people that were joined to the law of Moses volunteered their obedience. They said, all that Yahweh has said, we will do and be obedient. They volunteered their obedience. It was not compelled of them. And here we have the feast in Esther 1 which perfectly prefigures exactly what God has done to the nation in the wilderness, establishing the kingdom of God in the desert palace of Sinai. And everything's just the same, isn't it? The 187 days are the same. The colours and the fine linen are the same. The pillars and the cords and the sockets are the same. And the nation said, all that Yahweh hath said, we will do and be Obedient. And now we come to verse 9. Esther chapter 1 and verse 9. Let's see, shall we, whether the newly formed nation is going to be obedient. They've promised their obedience, but let's see. And in verse 9 we are introduced to the queen, Vashti who clearly, as we're going to see in a moment, is going to represent for us the natural nation of Israel. The very nation that's just promised their obedience to God. Well, what was, what was Vashti like? Vashti the queen. 
Well, we're really not told much about her, are we, brothers and sisters? But we are given a clue in verse 9, because Vashti means beautiful woman. Beautiful woman. You know, some people say that she was the daughter of the king of Sardis. Others say that she was Belshazzar's daughter. And, and probably, if she was either of those, she was a political wife. She was a wife of uh, expediency, shall we say. She was married to, to uh, keep the peace of the kingdom. But look what it says in verse 9, because she seems to have a mind of her own. Vashti the queen made a feast for the woman in the royal house which belonged to King Ahasuerus. You know, the definite article is not there. It really should be that she made a feast for women, not for the woman, for woman, for the cause of women. Here is a liberal thinker, and it's clearly an attempt, isn't it, brothers and sisters, to usurp the authority of the king. It was his royal house. It belonged to him. And this woman is going to hold her own feast. You know, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7 and 8, it's going to describe for us a picture, a picture of the true wife of the bride. And it says, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and her wife has made herself ready. And listen to these words. And to her, it shall be granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. It was granted her. It was not her right. It was not the right of the bride It was granted to her. And here, brothers and sisters, is a woman who does not appreciate what she has been given. So let's see what happens, shall we? Verses 9 to 12, the disobedience of Vashti. She makes a feast. And in verse 10 it says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bizthah, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zetha, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence before the face of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. And so on the seventh day, at the end of the 187 days of feasting, the king desired to bring Vashti before them. Clearly, he was in a happy mood. The phrase, uh, merry with, wi- with wine, it can imply that the king was drunk, uh, that he'd imbibed a little bit too much, but it might not as well. And uh, I can give you a couple of references where clearly it implies they're drunk and clearly in a couple of other references they're not. So we don't know for sure. But clearly his heart was merry. He was in a cheerful frame of mind. And he calls for the seven chamberlains or eunuchs as the word actually means. And he says, go and fetch Vashti. Clearly he wanted to show off to all the kingdom the crowning jewel of the kingdom. 
You know, Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 4 says, a virtuous woman is like a crown to her husband. You know, that's strange, isn't it? You'd think that it would say, a virtuous woman is a crown to herself. Her virtue is her crown. But no, a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, to him. It's not her crown. And now that King Ahasuerus wants to bring her forwards, he's going to display her for all of the world. You know, everything else around him is inanimate. It's glorious, but it doesn't have life. It's beautiful marble and fine linen and magnificent colours, but none of it is alive. And now the king wants to bring a living reflection of his glory out. The Septuagint puts it this way. It says, to bring the queen to him, to enthrone her and crown her with the diadem. He clearly wanted to show her off. You know, some people have suggested that the king was drunk and that he was asking Vashti to come before all the the raucous crowd of army chiefs without any clothes on. I'm not sure if you've heard that but I'm going to suggest to you that that clearly is just a Jewish tradition. And if you, if you do your research, you'll find that there's a, a whole lot of nasty things that go along with that tradition, none of which are in the Bible. We're not really told why the king decided to do this. All we're told is that it was because of his wife's beauty. And I can understand that. I, I have a wife. She's extremely beautiful. And uh, it's nice sometimes to show off her beauty. She is, we're working on her, her disobedience, but, um, <laughs> but uh, beauty, she's, she's not too bad. So uh, we can understand, can't we, if you have a beautiful woman, the crowning jewel of the empire, that the king would want to show her off. You know, Psalm 45 and verse 11 says, So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. For he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Because Vashti was the greatest living proof of the king's glory. The beautiful wife that perfectly was going to reflect him. And then we read in verse 12, But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth. And his anger burned in him. You know, we're not told why Vashti refused to come. We're not told what her motive was. But clearly the king and all the chamberlains saw it as an act of disobedience to her lord. Verse 15 describes it as a blatant act of rebellion. Verse 19 says it was a deliberate act of contempt. Verse 20 says it was a calculated act of dishonor. Verse 22 says it was an act of flagrant disregard for the king's authority. And chapter 2 verse 4 says that it was an act that did not please the king. It doesn't matter, does it, brothers and sisters, why Vashti didn't come. We're not told. What we are told is that, verse 17, this deed of the queen. It's what she did. It's not why she did it. It's what she did. And you know, brothers and sisters, it's going to be like that for all of us. We're not going to be judged 
necessarily for our motives. We're going to be judged for what we have done. It was the same in the Garden of Eden when God judged the serpent. You have done this, regardless of his motives. And it's exactly the same when our Lord Jesus Christ returns, isn't it? In Second of Corinthians 5, appear before the judgment seat and receive in our body according to what we have done, whether good or bad. And what Vashti did was clearly disobedient. It's a type of Israel after the flesh. Israel is a nation that blatantly rebelled and was uh, contemptuous of God's requirements. A nation that flagrantly disregarded his law. And look how clear this is. I want you to come to Ezekiel in chapter 16. Let's just read a couple of verses here in Ezekiel 16 and then go through this before we finish. Because Vashti is the perfect type of disobedient Israel. Look what it says in Ezekiel 16 and verse 8. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Israel was God's wife. I washed you with water. I thoroughly washed away your blood. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with broidered work and shod, shod thee with badger's skins that was on top of the tabernacle and girded thee about with fine linen. I covered thee with silk. I decked you out with ornaments. I put bracelets on your hands, chains on your neck, jewels on your forehead, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. You were decked with gold and silver, fine linen, silk, broidered work. You ate the best of all foods, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, and it was perfect through thy comeliness which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty and played the harlot. This is natural Israel. And by the time we come to Ezekiel 21, God is going to say, take off the crown, remove the diadem, let it not be. This shall not be the same. So let's have a look, shall we, at the disobedience of Vashti as a type of natural Israel. Vashti was the king's first Wife, And Israel was clearly God's first wife. Jeremiah 31 says, I was an husband unto her. Vashti was known for her beauty in Esther chapter 1 and verse 11. And we've just read in Ezekiel 16 that, that uh, Israel was exceeding beautiful. Their renown went forth among the heathen for their beauty. She perfectly types natural Israel. She was supposed to be a reflection of her Lord. And God expected Israel, didn't he, to be a perfect reflection of himself. Isaiah 43 and verse 7 says, I have created Israel for my glory. Israel was supposed to reflect everything that was glorious about God. Ahasuerus sent to fetch Vashti in uh, Esther chapter 1 verse 10 after a feast of 187 days to show off her glory. 
And after 187 days, brothers and sisters, God called the priesthood out to reflect God's glory. The crown and glory of God's kingdom was Aaron and his house. And at the end of 187 days, seven days of the consecration of the priests, they were supposed to come out and be the perfect reflection of God himself, the crowning glory of his kingdom. And Leviticus 9 verse 6 says, the glory of Yahweh is going to appear to you this day. But Vashti refused to come. What is that a type of, brothers and sisters? The refusal of Vashti to come, except it be Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire which God commanded them not. They were disobedient. They did not reflect God's goodness or his mercy. And they were a type, a prototype, weren't they, of the whole of the nation down through time who was going to refuse to come, refuse to hear Jeremiah 13 verse 11 says, but they would not hear. The nation was just like Nadab and Abihu. And what happened to Nadab and Abihu, brothers and sisters? Well, it says in Esther chapter 1 that Ahasuerus was very wroth and his anger burned within him. Why do you think it says that, brothers and sisters, that he was very wroth and his anger burned within him? except it be a reference to God's fire that came out of heaven and destroyed Nadab and Abihu for their presumption and their disobedience right at the very time when God wanted them to reflect his glory. And down through time, brothers and sisters, we won't look these references up, but it says in Second Chronicles 36 that God sent messengers like the Chamberlains. He sent messengers. He sent messengers. And they would not listen. They would not come. And it says in Second Chronicles 36 and verse 16, God was wroth. And he burned up their city. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 7. In that parable about those who did not come to the wedding feast. We're going to come to Matthew 27 in just a moment. So Vashti clearly types for us the nation that had sworn their allegiance, their obedience at the foot of Mount Sinai, and yet exactly 187 days later they come out, or they refuse to come out rather, and reflect God's glory. They pour shame and dishonor and contempt upon God. You know, if you didn't think, brothers and sisters, that disobedience was Israel's problem, look at this, Joshua 5. They're consumed because they obeyed not the voice of Yahweh. Second Samuel 8, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Isaiah 42 verse 24, for they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. And look at this classic one in Jeremiah 22. But thou saidst, I will not hear, Israel said, this hath been thy manner from thy youth that thou obeyest not my voice. You know, we saw this morning, didn't we, that the manner of Moab from their youth was that they were settled on their lees. They were lazy. The manner of Israel from their youth was disobedience. And so we come to the last part of, of Esther chapter 1 in our story. 
because she's shown herself unworthy of the high honour of being God's wife. What is God going to do? Well, we find when we come back to Esther chapter 1 that God is going to, or the, the king rather, is going to consult, verse 13, with his wise men. And the king said to his wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment, verse 15, what shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? Who are these seven wise men, brothers and sisters? Well, they are clearly the angels in heaven. They are those who know the times, verse 13. They are those who always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10. And now God confers with the angels, what are we going to do about the nation of Israel that time after time has proved itself deliberately disobedient? And verse 15 makes it very clear that whatever the punishment was going to be, it had to be meted out according to law. The nation that disobeyed God's law would be punished with the law. And so down through time, the nation was going to be punished with all of the curses of the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And so we find in verse 16 that Mamukan, on behalf of the rest of the wise men, is going to lay out his argument. What are we going to do? And we don't have time to really look at this in a lot of detail because our time is up. But let me just say this to summarize Mamukan's ideas. He says, look, listen, O king, Vashti has overstepped the line. And because she's been given everything on the basis of the fact that greater privileges bring greater responsibilities, we're going to have to make an example of her. Otherwise, it's going to cause all other women to dishonor their husbands. I mean, if Vashti can do it to the king, what woman can't do it to their husband? And so we read in verse 19 that he says, If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. You know, that, those words, another that is better than she, must echo for us echoes to other parts of the Bible. Can, can anyone suggest where in anywhere else in the Bible it says something along those lines, I'm going to give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Any ideas, any thoughts? Saul to David or, or God to Saul? Exactly. First of Samuel 15 and verse 28, God said, well, Samuel said, Yahweh has rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And we don't have time to look at it. I was going to go there, but our Lord Jesus Christ picks up those words in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. See how those two, those two passages are clearly set alongside each other. And the disobedience of Israel was going to give way to the truth, going 
to the Gentiles, a nation that was going to bring forth the fruits thereof. And you know, it's very, very interesting that when we go to Matthew chapter 21, it's right at the end of Matthew 21 that we're told this. And when we come to the start of chapter 22, what do we have? Why? A parable about a wedding. And God says, go out and bring in the guests. And they would not come. And God said, right, I'll find myself a new bride. Go out into the highways and byways and bring those people in because my wedding will be furnished with guests. And so the wedding parable of Matthew 22 finds in, in its exact counterpart the, the, the uh, search for a new queen as we're going to come to tomorrow in Esther chapter 2. Well, I want to just finish with this, brothers and sisters, because the big lesson that comes out of Esther chapter 1 is obedience. If we want to please the king, if we want to show our subjection to him and be submissive, we must learn the lesson of obedience. What Vashti and the natural nation of Israel never understood. Two references. First to Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. And look at this. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? Obedience is so important, isn't it, brothers and sisters, as we prepare ourselves to be the Lamb's wife. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again, brothers and sisters. He's going to be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, just like God did to Nadab and Abihu, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the bald facts of the matter, brothers and sisters, isn't it? If we are not prepared to obey, we will be replaced in God's purpose. He doesn't have any time for disobedience. He didn't in the time of Saul, and he doesn't today. And you know what the problem is, is that we live, don't we, in a time of tolerance. We live in a time of broad-mindedness, of acceptance of what we might call progressive Christianity. And everybody around us, brothers and sisters, is blurring the edges And what we want to take from today's session is that what we think, what we think is enough, what we think will be satisfactory, what we're prepared to give God is not enough. It must be what he has asked, because he's asked from us obedience. Our Lord Jesus Christ, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered And being made perfect, it says, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that obey him. And so, brothers and sisters, if we want to be part of the bride, the Lamb's wife, if we want to be associated with our Lord Jesus Christ, all that he has said, we must do and be obedient. Because when he comes, we want to be part of that group of people, that very, very small group of people, don't we, brothers and sisters, who are obedient and who, as it says in Revelation, have made ourselves ready.